Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 291. This is the week of Pasha Shmois, the beginning of the second book of Chumash, called also Sefer HaGeula by the Ramban, even though it begins with Golis Mitzrayim, the exile, yet the entire book is also called Geula, because the entire purpose of the exile was redemption. At the end of this week, we also honor the Yortzeit of the Rambam on Chof Tevis, the 20th of Tevis. And the Rebbe, especially in the later years, after the Rebbe established the study of Rambam every day, would speak a lot about Chof Tevis, its connection to the Alta Rebbe's Yortzeit on the 24th of Tevis, but we'll be focusing on the 20th of Tevis. So, befitting to this special uh, week, a lot of the focus on the themes and the questions will be things around the Rambam, Meir Nevuchim, Chassidus connected to that, and even ideas, philosophical ideas that the Rambam introduced and its relationship with Yiddishkeit. And you'll see from the questions how we uh, so-called, I wouldn't call it a special edition, but it's special emphasis on these type of themes. So we always begin with the Parsha. So let's begin with Parsha Shmuis. And with that, we'll go to the Rambam and then to the questions, very interesting questions this week. As every week, and I want to thank you all, of course, for your participation and your partnership. Firstly, this program is not possible without your viewing it, and it's not possible without your questions. So all questions can be submitted at chassidusapplied.com, a relatively new website dedicated completely to this program and related resources where you can submit your question as well as watch and view and listen to previous episodes. And also all the essays, the thousands of essays that many of you viewers and others have submitted over the years applying chassidus to contemporary issues in life as well as other resources. So with that said, let's go to Pasha Shmais. As I began, the Rambans interestingly calls it Sefer HaGeula. Now it's true, after the second, middle of the second chapter of the Torah, the Geula begins, that after 210 years of a bitter and difficult exile and bondage, the Jewish people finally march out of Golos into the Geulas Mitzrayim. And from there on, as the Maral Meprak says, we would never ever be capable of being slaves and servants again. A new tchuna, a new personality was infused in the Jewish people after Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim that they are forever now Bnei Cheren. You're my servants, God's servants, and not servants to my servants. So this isn't just a physical thing, but also a spiritual and psychological and emotional state that we are never subjugated to others. And that's why Mordechai refused to bow to Haman, and that's why Jews refused to conform and bow to the mores of the time and to the principles or the other standards of whatever time or whatever people they were. They were always pleasant and always peaceful, but did not define their lives by popularity or by what others are saying and what the standards were of each particular society. They lived up to the highest standard of all, which is the standard that God inscribed in the Torah that is our moral compass, our mandate. So that happened in the second, middle of the second chapter. But till there, two chapters are about Golis. And not just Golis, it gets more darker and deeper to the point that the Jews lost all hope, complete despair. 
And yet he calls the entire book Sefer HaGaula, teaching us a fundamental principle that Chassidus really illuminated, and that is that even the Yerida, even the descent, even the darkest descent is Tzedek Aliyah, is in order for the elevation. To the point, as the Rebbe explains, it's not two stages. It's two parts of one redemption. One part is the descent, but that descent is amenas, is on condition, and in it is built in the purpose of it, which is to become a redemption. And not just a redemption, a redemption that's of great power, because it's built by the darkness. As the halacha says, Jewish law, when you challenge a shtar, a contract, shtar shiyotzel of irud, if you challenge a contract and then it's upheld, you never can challenge it again. Why? Because it's been challenged. If it's never been challenged, you can always challenge it. So you see from that that when we go through darkness, when we go through, through challenge, and we come out stronger, we never can be challenged again. We are now, from now on forever free people. So therefore, even the Golas itself becomes part of Gula. You may not see that immediately, and it could be very dark and very foreboding, but in essence, it's really a part of the Geula. And especially as we look in retrospect, we see what happened. The people through the Kur HaBazel, like a melting pot, they a smelting oven, they became a metal, a hardened metal that never could be destroyed again. So the lesson, of course, is no matter what you go through, always know it's not the end of the story. It's a step toward ultimate redemption in your life. So we all have Mitzrayim in our lives. Mitzrayim comes from the root which is limitations, constraints, uh, any form of inhibition, fear, insecurity, and so on. So we all have it, and it can trap us, and it can paralyze us, and in many ways can immobilize us. But in truth, it's only a step to become an immortal, to become formidable force that can never be destroyed, indestructible. That's lesson number one. So, that's how the, the parsha begins, the beginning of the book. It's called Shmois. These are the names of the Jewish people. As the Medr says, these are the names that they went in with, and these are the names they would leave with. That means they would remain intact, no matter what they went through. Okay. We will talk more about some questions regarding this parsha and related items shortly, but I want to move over now to the Rambam, being that it's the 20th of Tevis. So the question, of course, is, well, I would put it this way. The question is that Rambam was always a very key figure in Jewish life. And yet you find he was embroiled in controversy. During the time of the Rambam, remember, there wasn't communications as it is today. So the Mishnah Teda, of course, was a magnum opus that everybody was impressed with. But there were those that questioned. They questioned why. There are no sources in it. And some questioned the philosophical underpinnings of the Rambam. The first four chapters in Hilchas Yisaydat Teda, some even consider it is not necessarily something that needs to be learned. And they equated it somewhat with from Meir Nevuchim. Meir Nevuchim was a book called The Guide for the Perplexed, which the Rambam wrote specifically for a student, for those that are perplexed. And many argue this is not for everybody else. Somewhat apologetic, trying to reconcile this Aristotelian philosophy, Judaism, and for many years, Marim Nevuchim was always somewhat off limits. The Ramban wrote a letter, a Snatzlus, defending the Rambam, because there was a time that some of the Rambam's books were even burned, like the Marim Nevuchim and others. 
because they saw that more philosophical talk coming from Greek philosophy. And yet you see by the Rebbe that the Rebbe not only embraced the Rambam, the Mishnah Teren, and the first four chapters, but also the Meir Nebuchim. Till the Alter Rebbe in Tanya, you don't find the Meir Nebuchim cited often. The Alter Rebbe began bringing from there. So we're going to talk about this topic, which touches upon a lot of different issues. And, uh, but before I get into that, I want to first just say a few words about the Yartzeit of the Rambam itself. So the Rebbe, who of course established the study of Rambam every day, three chapters a day, or one chapter a day, or a mitzvah from Sefer HaMitzvah, so he didn't just establish that, but he began to also talk about the Rambam in a much more personal way. The birthday of the Rambam in Erev Pesach, the Yartzeit of the Rambam in Chavtevis. So let's begin with action. The action is that this is a day to rededicate ourselves to the study of Rambam, especially the daily study that the Rebbe established in Tovshin Mem Dalad, 1984, Pesach, Achon Pesach. But there are already hints to it earlier. Remember, I remember uh, very vividly the big Hadran, the great Hadran, one of the great contributions of the Rebbe, mind-blowing, Yutas Gisel Tovshin Lamed Hey, which has been published explaining the beginning of the Rambam, the end of the Rambam in, in unbelievable ways. I've talked about it other times. Now is not the time to go into that. But it's a time to strengthen our commitment. And as the Rebbe puts it, the Rambam is Kael Kol HaTeru Kula. Shulchan Aruch, which is a co- also a code of Jewish law, does not talk about the laws of Mashiach. and does not talk about the laws of the Beis Amikdash. Its laws focus primarily on the laws that are Shayach, that are possible to be done in our day and the age, meaning when there's no temple. The Rambam talks about all halachas, and as he writes in his introduction, he gathered together everything from the written Torah, through the, through Shas, through Mishnah, Gemara, Rabbonu Savaroi, Go'enim, up till his day, and all included in one book. And he says, in strong terms, that you can learn Chumash, Torah Shabiksav, and my Sefer, and you'll have a Chola That too was challenged, and obviously we learn more than the Rambam, but you see, the Rambam has a all-encompassing picture. So when you finish the Rambam, you're actually finished kol, kol as the Rebbe emphasizes, and you're doing it with all the Jewish people. So it's especially important to prepare for the Geula, because that's what you need, the unity of all people, together with the unity of Kol Kula. And the Rambam, indeed, at the end of his Mishnah Tera, talks in the last two chapters, 11 and 12, of Hilchus Malachim or Mochami Sehem, the laws of kings talks specifically about Mashiach in a very detailed form and becomes a foundation, of course, to so many principles in uh, the belief, the Jewish, the faith and belief, that we await Mashiach's coming every moment. And to the day, as the Rambam concludes, when it will be the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea, in the words, the classic words of Yeshaya Hanavi. So the Rambam, in a sense, is like encompassing the entire Torah to the point of leading us into the Gul. Okay, so now let's go to some questions that have been asked. I'll begin with a few things on Shmois, and then we'll move over to the Rambam. But before that, I want to talk about one more thing. Being that we're coming from Asar Tevis, which was a few days ago, the 10th of Tevis, and the Rebbe, a number of years, said Asara B'Tevis is, is 30 days before Asara B'Shvat, Asiri B'Shvat, 10 Yuchvat. This year is a special year. We're marking the 70th, 70th anniversary of the Rebbe's Nesias. 
Yud Shvat Tov Shin Yud, 70 years ago, in a few weeks from now, will be the 70th Yorzeit of the Friedrich Rebbe, Shabbos morning, Pasha Boy, Yud Shvat, Sistalkus of the Friedrich Rebbe. And with that, as the sun set, the sun rose. The new Nasi would be the son-in-law of, the Friedrich, of our Rebbe, Deir Hashvi. Being that this is now the 70th year, so it's worth to start preparing for it. Maybe even we should have started earlier, and I'm sure many of you have, but I'm using this opportunity and this platform of Chesedus Applied, especially this year, to honor and celebrate 70 years. So the best place to look at what is 70 years is in the Rebbe's talks. And there are a number of places where the Rebbe spoke about 70 years. First of all, there's the Rebbe's 70th birthday in Tav Shalamit Beis. He spoke about it, but there's also later talks, which I'm going to refer to now. Few that come to mind. I remember Chof Of and Shabbos Pasha De the Shabbos after Chof Of, Tov Shim Mem Beis. Where the Rebbe spoke about Shivim Shona, it was actually 70 years from Teter Semes, the establishment of Teter Semes in Yerushalayim. And the Rebbe spoke then about Shivim Shona, the Gemara that speaks that when you eat olive, it makes you forget Teter for 70 years. And when you eat olive oil, it makes you remember Tater of 70 years. Why 70? So the Rebbe said, we see from that that 70 is a whole seder, is a whole conclusion of a cycle and study, both in, in quantity and in quality, as discussed there at length. Another sikha, closer to, literally one of the later sikhas in Tav Shinun Beis, 1992, before their stroke, was Tu Bishvat Tav Shinun Beis, where the Rebbe spoke about the seven pedas, and one of them, Tomar, Tvash Tomarim, which is date honey, Talmud, it says, grows every 70 years, meaning it's just a plant that takes 70 years to grow. I never spoke about 70 there. But above all, I want to focus on is Pasha Shmois. Since this week is Pasha Shmois, Pasha Shmois, Tov Shinun Beis, that ever spoke about 70 years. It wasn't marking any particular anniversary, but that ever spoke about Shmois, about Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, and of course, the words, the famous words from the Haggadah, who we're in the Haggadah has mentioned 70 years. I'll give you a moment to think. Well, it is, right in the beginning of Magid, where it talks about how the, the, the Tanoim were sitting and talking all night about Yitzhiz Mitzrayim in Bnei Barak, Rabtarfim, Rabbalazar, Rabbalazar ben Azariah, and the Talmidim came to remind them that it's time to say Krishna. And there we learned that Rabbalazar ben Azariah said, ben Shivim Shana, I am like 70 years old. We know the story that he was the miracle that God made for him to be able to be recognized as a Nasi, as a leader, when he was just 17 years old. They so to made his hair white. And the Rebbe explains it wasn't just a trick, because that, that, that demonstrates and reflects Hadras Ponim Zokan, the idea of age, of maturity. He was like 70 years old. And then he continues and says, In all these years, I did not know whether you tell the story of Yitzhiz Messiah by night until I learned from Ben Zema. He learns from the Posik, Mantisker, that you also say it by night. The Mechachomim say that we learn from it that's also Yumeisa Mashiach. In a beautiful and powerful Sikhah, Shmois Tovshin and Beis, it's worth reading this week because of the Shivim Shana, the Rebbe elaborates on the entire statement we say in the Haggadah and also asks the question what's the connection to 70 years? Since we say it in the Haggadah, there has to be a connection. And the Rebbe explains because for a Nasi to be complete, he needs to have 70 years. 70 is 7 times 10, is the refinement of the entire cycle of the seven midas. First, the negative midas of the Nevesh Abamis, their refinement, 
Seven times ten is each one chesed, gvura, teferis, netzach, yisayid, malchus. Each one includes ten, ten spheres, chachmah shebechesed, bina shebechesed, so ten times seven is seventy. So when you finish that type of refinement, that creates an elevation, and you reach also seventy in Kedusha, in the midas of the Nefesh of the Kis, is also seven times ten. Ayin, the letter Ayin, which is seventy, means to see the Ayin of Kedusha, that is Ayin by Ayin Yiro, where Mashiach will come, will see eye to eye, literally eye to eye, God, eye to eye, without any masks, as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya chapter 36, there will no longer be a garment or a mask or a, uh, that will conceal our face of our teacher. We'll, ayin by Ayin Yiro, we'll see fe, eye to eye. So the Ayin of Gedusha is the Gili Alekuz Be'efen Shoriyah to experience and perceive the divine as if you see something. Not just you hear it from a distance, but you see it has a level of perception, a level of resonance that comes only with sight. And that's why it says Shivim Shona, because he needed that cycle of 70 to be able to be a Nasi, and the connection to Yitzhi Mitzrayim is, because that's what he says, then even by night, even when the darkness of Golas, the Lila of Golas, you also reveal the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Like I mentioned before from the Ramban, that though the first two and a half chapters in this, this Parsha of this book of Mishmois is all about darkness, but the darkness is illuminated by the light of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And you have the ability to do that when you reach the 70. So what do we see from this briefly? 70 years has a particular power in the Sias, in the leadership. The complete of the completion of a cycle, 7 times 10, and especially in our case, we're talking about Deir Hashvi, seventh generation, so 10 times 7 is 70. So this isn't just semantics and words, it's telling us that we're reaching a stage where we can finally finish the Mishlichas that the Rebbe gave us. Yud Tov Shin Yud, articulated Yud Tov Shin Yud Aleph in the Mimer, where he said that we are the seventh generation. And that's what's Tevim Imen, this is what's demanded of us. It's not because of our choice, not because of our avoider that we earned it, and in some cases it's not even something we want. But we are the seventh, the seventh from the first. And now we're the 70th year of that seventh, genera- of seventh generation. So we have a particular sense of urgency to do whatever it takes to finish the job. Of course it begins with a new intense commitment to Teireh and Mitzvahs, Limadah Teireh and Kima Mitzvahs, and Mitzvahs Behidur, with Agdoma of davening properly. And of course, in the specific way that the Rebbe told us in Deir Ashvi, is our mission is to bring the Shekhinah down below, which is through the spreading of Chassidus, that the Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tov, that's when I will come, when you will spread it to Chutzah. And so the job we have in the seven generations is not just to spread it, but to spread it and bring it down into this material, physical world. So this year we have special strengths to do so. And we have now a few weeks to prepare this doesn't mean it's over then, it means that we just begin. But the better we prepare with that sense of commitment, the more we will take advantage of this special year. And hopefully with our small effort or large effort, we will actually bring the Geula, like the Chachamim say, that's L'Harabes Yimeis HaMashiach, L'Harabes Yimeis HaMashiach, which is, the Rebbe explains in that Shemay Sicha, the, the two opinions, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, Chachamim, and this is good homework to go read it, especially this week of Shmois and his connection to Shivim Shona. Okay. Let us now um, 
go to a few questions regarding both Shmois and Rambam. We'll start with Shmois. What is, why is the story of the Exodus not corroborated by archaeological evidence? Another person wrote it a bit differently. We are not often told, we are often told that if we really look, we will find God. But why is it that there's so little scientific evidence, especially for one of the most important narratives of the Torah, the story of Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim? It seems very odd that scientists and archaeologists would not find evidence of almost any of the stories, if any, in the Torah. It's very confusing. So a few points, and I'm going to talk about this some more as we go along. The whole idea of faith and proof and so on. And this is also connected, of course, to the Rambam because he struggled with this issue and wrote about it a lot, where rationale comes in, where faith comes in. So the first thing we need to know is God's existence is not based purely on faith. I'm sorry, correct that. It's not based purely on reason. When you start going with reason, you can bring proofs, and you can also bring other proofs. And as I've discussed many times, that the fact is that God is above reason. So if anybody says, I want a God that's a product of my reason, then essentially you want a God that's a product of your mathematical equation. When really it should work the other way around. We are a part of the whole, meaning God put us here. We didn't put God here. It's not God is a product of our logical deductions. And that's what Avraham Avinu came to discover, that with all his search, the part cannot dictate the whole, part meaning the creation we are. So there's a certain part of logic that dictates there's something beyond us that put us here. Can it be absolutely proven? Well, Hashem himself said, When Moshe Rabbeinu asked God, why does he write, we shall create? People say, we, there's a duality, there's a plurality. God said, Does the, one, the one who wants to make will make a mistake. One, one who wants to make a mistake will make a mistake. What kind of answer is that? Because especially when you look at this, that God created the world with a tzimtzum. He essentially created an agnostic universe. And that's why we need to choose. And that's why we need to work hard. If it was an absolute slam dunk, then there wouldn't be any choice. So God created an independent consciousness for us to choose to connect to God. That doesn't mean there are no proofs, but it means that there's also an element that we have to put work into it. And it's not just an obvious thing. We need to work in it and we have to argue about it. But at the end of the day, it's not about proof. Though we'll soon discuss that we have to do whatever we can to rationally understand God and understand God's presence in our lives. But at the end of the day, it's not proof because, as I said before, God put us here. Your proof is not what defines God. As In addition to the fact that God concealed his presence and therefore there's always, you can always have an argument about the topic. So let's go back now to, so that's why the Rambam says, why do we believe in the Torah? Because our own eyes saw it. There was a witnesses, and witnesses shared it with their children, and their children with their children till this very day. So whether we scientists or archaeologists find something or not doesn't change the reality. As the Rebbe once said, Amuna, nishta kasha mach shvacher, or nishta enfer mach starker. When it comes to faith, a question doesn't weaken it, and an answer doesn't strengthen it. Because faith is a resonating truth within your heart and soul that you sense there's something greater than you are. You sense there's something before us. And especially when we see the witnesses, not one, 
but the thousands, the hundreds of the millions of witnesses, this has been a consistent passed on from parent to child, there's a certain truth to that. But it's not airtight, because you need to choose. We see, there are people who claim they believe in God, and they still don't behave perfectly. Let alone people who say, I'm not sure. So that's number one. And we talked about this once at length, why the Taylor doesn't go around proving God's existence. It starts, It's a given, it's an axiom. Why? Because the Taylor understood that you don't have this axiom, you can argue about the rest of your life. You have to have this axiom. That doesn't mean there aren't arguments and there are discussions, but it's not based on that. I discussed this in episodes 112 and 143. Now, as far as archaeologists go, actually recently there have been articles that have discovered in the sea, the, the, the Red Sea, the Red Sea, the Reed Sea as it's called, some call it, actually the remains of, of, of many, many people including chariots and other things described in the Torah with when the Egyptians pursued the Jews and the yams of the old round there. So did, some did find evidence. I didn't do a thorough research. And I know some argue that you don't find the travel through the wilderness, you don't find if it was millions of people or you should have found something. So I don't know if you can give credence to that. Number one, the fact they didn't find yet doesn't mean they won't find. Number two, over the years, especially in a desert, conditions, anything can happen. So even if you don't find it, again, our, our proofs are not based purely on whether somebody finds a proof. You see today, you find things suddenly, and suddenly they changes the whole picture of evolution or other things that scientists argue. So I'm not surprised you won't find other things will be found with time. Again, it doesn't, not dependent on that and not defined by that. So I know it's not an adequate answer for some. They say, if we would find it, then what would happen? You suddenly believe in Mount Teda? You could always explain, okay, people did travel through there. Okay, that's, that's regarding that issue. So you could ask the question then, so how then do we know? And how do we live our lives? Look, you have to take all the data that you can put together and come to a decision. Remember, from my point of view, if somebody can prove that Kriyas Yamsuf happened it doesn't ha- or, or just cannot prove it, does not change the realities. You look at the entire picture of Judaism and you see its resonating truths. You see that it's lasted through all this time. You see that people are born witness and believe in these events. So even if you may be a skeptic, and we all have some skepticism in us, you have to look at the whole picture. Does Judaism make sense? Does Judaism resonate? Has it brought to civilization to the world? And has brought Zdokeh and Mishpat. What are the principles of Judaism? And not only the answer is yes, a resounding yes, it transformed the world. So when you look at it that way, so some things you just either don't matter to you, if you know, even if you can't prove exactly something happened, or you give it the benefit of the doubt. Now, if Judaism, God forbid, was a corrupt and destructive system, and I'm not talking about people now, I'm talking about the system, the Torah, so you could say the whole thing is a myth, God forbid. But since the Torah overall, when you look at the whole picture, you see its contributions, its message, what God wants of us is the most highest standards of morality, of ethics, of refinement, then all that comes together, plus the witnesses and plus the other elements of faith, the whole picture makes sense. You have to take that attitude because if not, you can start picking apart every story and saying, until I don't have exact empirical proof, which you may never find, you may, you may not. So you have to look at the whole story. That's how I see it. It's like your parents pass on to you a tradition. 
You look at the whole picture. Some details may be easier to prove, some be easier to, to believe in, some not. But that doesn't change the big picture, which I think is the vital component here. Now, with that, let's move to a whole series of questions that we received. And I bunched them together here in honor of the Rambam's uh, yard site. So, just going to read a few of them and then maybe just answer them as we go along. Were any of the Rabbeim influenced by secular philosophers, like the Rambam was by Aristotle in his Meir Nebuchim? And is any chassidus based on modern philosophy like the Meir Nebuchim was? Okay. Another question, and I'm going to try to answer them all together. Is any chassidus based on Meir Nebuchim? Meir Nebuchim, as I mentioned, is the God of the Perplexed, the Rambam's book, philosophical book, written for the perplexed. Is any chassidus based on that? Other questions in this family. Is it okay to study secular philosophy if you don't find answers to many questions that, that you have in Jewish sources? Our next question. There's a story about the Rebbe Rashab where he said that he didn't study secular studies and that he didn't even fill it in Meir Nevuchim Nishgekokt. He didn't even look at Meir Nevuchim. What did he mean by that? And continuing, I recently heard somebody say that until the Tanya, no major author quoted the Meir Nevuchim from the Rambam. I also heard that the Rebbe Rashad said something to the effect that he didn't even look into Meir Nevuchim due to the secular ideas discussed in it. Why the hostility to Meir Nevuchim, even though the Rambam's other sefer, the Mishnah Tater, was accepted? Okay, we'll soon talk more about these topics in different questions, but let me just cover this. Now, I know I addressed several different questions that seem coming from different directions, but it's all connected. The Torah is considered by the Jewish people, and I say considered in a strong way. Its belief is, it was given to God at Sinai as a blueprint for life. When God created the world, he used the Torah as its blueprint. So he looked in the Torah, and with that he created the world. So it's not just another book of philosophy or teachings or moral teachings. It's divine truth. Every form of philosophy or psychology or any secular study is man's effort to try to understand. Man's limited effort. Now, in some cases, we come to understand things and find certain truths, and some cases not. Even when we find certain truths, they are the best we can do. So you can't really compare. It's completely two different realities. The Torah is God telling us what is true. All secular wisdom, including philosophies, are telling you what human beings have tried. Some are completely nonsense. Some of it is meaningful. Some of it is a combination. But there's two different realities. So we don't look to man's search for understanding things for absolute truths. This doesn't mean that man's search doesn't have value. When Avramovina went to look for God, he went through his own efforts until he discovered, until God revealed himself. We too, as human beings, we study Torah and we can learn what God tells us. That doesn't mean we don't use our minds and we could also explore different things that sometimes helps us understand what God wants of us. But it's very two different realities. One is Mamayla Lamata coming from God telling us and the other is man's effort. 
So when you say what the Rabbeim was Torah influenced by secular philosophy, in general the answer is no. Because they come from a Torah perspective. And yet we find that the Rambam himself brings in Hilchus Kiddush HaChedish that the calculations, astronomical calculations, we learn from the Greeks. And same thing with mathematics and science and medicine and so on. Not everything is derived directly from the Torah. So how do we reconcile these two realities? The answer is the same God that created a Torah also planted wisdom in this world. And when you study botany, astronomy, mathematics, physics, neuroscience, the list goes on, you're studying God's creation as well. No, the only difference is you're not getting direct God streaming to you and downloading into you his understanding of it. He says, you figure it out. I've given the permission to a healer to heal. Which means that the Torah itself sanctions the study of medicine. And the Rambam himself was a doctor. Whatever the circumstances, I'll let him there. But he was a doctor that studied medicine. He didn't take everything from the Torah. She'll say, if everything comes from the Torah, God created the Torah, the blueprint. But the same God that created the blueprint said, some things I want you to figure out through Chochma Bagoyim Tamin human effort in understanding. And you want them to meet. You want them to complement each other, not to conflict. Unfortunately today, science in some people's minds has replaced what God says. That was never the intention. That's almost ridiculous. Why? Because it's the same God that gave us science, or the wisdom within existence that science tries to discover is the same God that gave us Tate. So like it is with everything in life, like the Tzunasrufus who asked Rabbi Akiva, if God wanted circumcision, he should have created boys that are circumcised. Why are you circumcising them? So Rabbi Akiva wisely answered, if God wanted us to have bread, he should have given us bread. Why do we have to plow, work the fields and plow the land and finally plant grain and then harvest it and then turn it into flour and from the flour we mix with water and we bake it and finally have bread? Because Shutaf la Kodesh Baruch Hu B'mayi were partners. God created, he created it in order for us to improve it. It's like a partnership. God gives the resources. We use the resources to, to develop. So the whole search of wisdom, of science, of, of all thought, is our effort in looking at the resources God gave us the world and trying to understand what makes it tick. What are the forces beneath it? Electricity was in existence when Adam and Chava were put into the Garden of Eden. Then it wasn't invented later, it was discovered later. And the same thing with the subatomic particles and atoms and nuclear energy and atomic energy. Everything in its time. So the ultimate, ultimate knowledge would be can you combine Torah wisdom and human effort wisdom and then you have the combination of Chochmas Elam and Chochmas HaTer. The explosion that the, the, the Zaya talks about in the year Tafresh, in the year 1840 equivalent, is the explosion of the higher wisdom of Torah and the lower wisdom of science. Where we go off is when the Torah rejects human effort or when the human effort rejects Torah and God and doesn't recognize it, thinks its human effort is, is wiser than the absolute truths of the Torah. So with that said, let's now go to the questions. Were they influenced? Absolutely not influenced. That, however, does not mean, just like with Hilchus Kiddush HaChedesh, there might be things in Chochmah Se'elam that, for example, you find a it brings Chochmah Se'elam, it brings 
as a moshul, as an example. So does that mean they took it from there? But they're using that to demonstrate a divine truth. The Rebbe has a fascinating letter. It's printed in the Gruskadish. It's from before the Nesias. It's printed in the Chelikud Beis, this is where I remember it most. Page, tw- volume 12, page 196 and on. Very powerful um, letter where the Rebbe actually enumerates six different ways of how Chochmah Se'elam, secular wisdom, becomes part of Teirah. So I would recommend reading that where you have how you can derive from Teirah or something in science, how the Teirah gives you a mitzvah to go learn science, like for example, like I mentioned, uh, there's also the halacha that Sanhedrin and those that have to paskin need to learn the laws even of sorcery and Avedah Zodah, idolatry, which is also to learn. You're not allowed to learn idolatry. But if it's in the game halacha, you can. And the Rebbe goes through all six. I'm not going to go through them all here. One is when you, you have no choice or in order to do a mitzvah properly, you need to go study. Like we find the Rebbe brings Rav that he, 18 months he stayed by a, uh, he was stayed with a shepherd in Gemara Sanhedrin, Hayam at Beis, to know, to learn different, what is a mum, what is a blemish that is permanent, what is a blemish that's temporary. Another final way, next five, step five, is to, in order to have panosa. And finally comes to step six, to learn it, if you know how to use it, for Avedis Hashem. So it's a very fascinating letter, which really puts into context this whole idea of how secular wisdom or secular science comes into play with Teda. Now, with that said... Let me just mention something regarding the Rambam, since we're talking about Meir Nevuchim. So Meir Nevuchim, so the Rambam, there's a, the, that letter begins actually with a question that someone asked the Rebbe about what it says in Migdalais. That the Rambam, it says, did not read books of uh, basically pagan books or mystical pagan books called Maisifre Mirus. And he writes that it seems, uh, seems a pella, because the Rambam himself says in Meir Nevuchim that he did. And the Rebbe agrees with him. And the Rebbe uh, negates any type of, uh, try to explain the different ways that he didn't really take it from the books, he took it from something else. And of course, this issue that I mentioned before, that you're supposed to learn these dinim, if it's negayet to halacha, you have to know Hechuzah So the Rebbe brings also from the Sofras Paneach, from the Ragat Shover, in a follow-up letter, he says, interesting thing, the Ragat Shover says, following. That the Isr, the prohibition of studying laws of, studying books of idolatry, is only the time when, when idolatry existed. Not once it was forsaken, and it's like just a, a thing in the past. And that's why the Rambam, he writes, was able to read such books. But the Rebbe negates it completely, because he says, the Rambam says that, that part of this idolatry is still existent, 
and you can't say only existent in small towns, but even in big cities, he brings from, from India and other places. So that just negates that. So therefore, the Rebbe comes and says, no, there is the idea of learning it in order to use it for tater purposes. So what do you see from this? That we have to be careful, obviously, because not to read it on its own, just for your own sake, that's definitely not permitted. But there are places where there's an overlap in how it's used in Teda, and the Rebbe enumerates those six different levels. But let's talk about Meir Nebuchim. I mentioned earlier that there were those, G'day Yisrael, that rejected the Meir Nebuchim up till this very day. And indeed, even the first four chapters of Hilchus, you say that Teda from the Ram, they also put it in that category, philosophical. At best, they said it was necessary perhaps for the perplexed, but not for everybody else, as the Rambam actually writes in his own introduction. And the, the, the Rebbe Rashab story seems to fit very well with that. He didn't read these books. There was no need to read them, even the Meir Nebuchim. And yet, we find that the Meir Nebuchim is cited in Tanya. And yes, one of the first, maybe the first Sefer that cites it in that way. Additionally, we know that the Ra'al Rebbe taught Meir Nebuchim with the Tzemach Tzedek. In the back of Sefer Achkira, which is a book from the Tzemach Tzedek, a Sefer from the Tzemach Tzedek, he brings interpretations in Meir Nebuchim based on what he learned with the Alter Rebbe. So we see from that that the Meir Nebuchim has elements that connect to Chesidus. But when you read many of the Meir Nebuchim, you see a certain approach. Like for example, he says the numbers, why there's this amount of Ketedus, or this amount of Karbonus, or why things... Are, he says, numbers are not bediuk, because any number you'd say, you'd ask the question. When it comes to Teirach, Siddhis especially, focuses every number is precise. So the Rebbe has a very interesting letter, a Tubishvat letter, I think it's printed in Chelik uh, Chofalaf in the Hesophis, that the Rambam is talking in Chetzenis And there the numbers are not that significant, but we talk Primis and Yanim, it is significant. Similar to what the Dera Chaim says, the Mitla Rebbe, when explaining the Rambam Shit and Ashgacha Pratis, as the Rebbe explains, is Ashgacha Klolis except by human beings. Everything else is in general, not, not Ashgacha Pratis as the Balshemtav teaches. The Dera Chaim comes and reconciles the two, that the Rambam talked on Chitzenius Ashgacha. In Primis Ashgacha, every detail matters. So you suddenly see that the Rambam's Meir in context, had its role. And it has a primizdika meaning behind it. And the Rebbe definitely elevated Meir Nebuchim to another level by literally reciting it in all kinds of discussions. The Ragachover as well brings Meir Nebuchim extensively to explain the different rules of halacha, different rules of Gemara and so on, different principles. The ideas of Etzim and Murkov, Klal and Prat, whether time is one extension or time is made up of particles or moments pieces, parts, and many, many other rules. You look at Mifanech Tzvenis that Rav Kasher made, he brings it all together, and it's always connected to Mer Nebuchim. So you could say like this, that in earlier generations, if you looked at Mer Nebuchim on face value, it has elements that seem philosophical, even apologetic in some people's minds. But when you look deeper, being that it's the Rambam, there's an element of it that has a premius to it, and you can understand it in context, whether it's Chetzen Yisachachma, or he's explaining everything, Api Seichel, or the Rambam was Abar Seichel, that doesn't negate other things, like the Rambam says about Chiyas HaMesim. In his Egeris, and he's responding, why he didn't bring Chiyas HaMesim in the end, he brings in Hilchas Shuvah, but not in the end of Hilchas Malachim. He said, because he only brought things that he was definitely sure 
would be a certain way. Things that were not sure, he didn't bring in halacha. But if someone would show proof, he would bring that as well. What does that mean? He's not negating, he's speaking on a certain level. Same thing with Shadim. The Rambam negates the whole idea of demons and all that. And the Rebbe explains that after the, the, the Rambam, after the Rambam, there was no more Shadim to try to reconcile. This is Tov Shemem Gimel, Pasha Truma, Mishpatim and Truma. What do we know from this? That the Rambam, in his world, how he understood things, there's a certain world where these things are not existent. But you go to a different world, they can be existent. Like Shammai and Hillel. In the world of Shammai, Gvura dominates. In the world of Hillel, Chassid dominates. That's why by them, Shammai finds something is more strict. Something is Asr, not forbidden. And Hillel says it's Mutr. They're both true on a certain level. But Halacha dictates one way. So the Rambam, for example, held that the ultimate reward would be for Neshama Salam. Because in the world of Seichel, a soul is closer to the divine than a body. A body is a corporeal creature creation so that we have to have tchis amazing because you need to also reward the body but that will be temporary the ultimate reward will be that Amban comes and says no tchis amazing will be the ultimate reward Chesidah says that Samach Tzedek says the Alter Rebbe always brought the day of the Ramban and the Rebbe puts it that's the Psak this doesn't mean there's no merit to what the Rambam says there's merit in that reality the reality of Seichel or the reality of of spirituality. And this is not a chiddush, a chiddush. It's a chiddush. The Alter Rebbe says it right in the beginning of Tanya, chapter 2. He says, the Rambam says, The Baral comes and negates and says, No. The Ebersh is higher than Das. You can't call the God knowing and the knower and the knowledge all one. Comes Chassidus and says, Both are true. If you're talking in Slapshus, Edis, and Kalim, as the Rebbe, Alta Rebbe says, They also agree with the Rambam. Where, once it's an Esus Firis, Edis and Kalim, the Ramak, and Narizal as well. But if you're talking about God as He's higher than Sedish Tashus, then He's higher than Das, and higher than Chachm and Bina. So you see, both realities are correct once you learn Chassidus. So the Rambam, you look at it just as I said, face value, or just as that. Yes, you could see why he was rejected, or this they saw it as not part of Tera as we see it. But Chassidus, and especially the Alter Rebbe, and the Rebbe elevated it. Now, why the Rabbi Shab said he doesn't learn it needs a further explanation. I would say, based on this, he was talking, if you're talking to me as a philosophical book, no. I don't look there, I don't look in any such books. If you're talking to Chassidus and Tera, and then. It's hard to say that the Rebbe Rashab was not makabal what the Tzamech Tzedek learned with the Rebbe, with the Alter Rebbe, including Sefer Achkira. So you have to say that maybe that's what he meant. Maybe this is a Dechik Tzas. I'm just giving my take on it. If someone has a better way to explain the, the Rebbe Rashab, by all means. It's right in the beginning of Tere Shalom. We slap Sabocher, a light, a light touch, for looking in these type of books. But it could be if you're looking in them just as philosophy, equated with Aristotelian philosophy, that's one thing. But if you're looking at it as a part of Teda, it's a very different thing. That's how I would explain it. Okay. So that brings a little picture to the whole idea of Meir Nebuchim and the context of the Rambam in context of philosophy and secular science and so on. But with that, let's go for a few more questions in this same vein. Just want to refer you to episodes 24 and 27 to through 27 where I talked about secular philosophy. And... Um, Looking there, if you don't find answers in Tera. Okay, next question. And again, this is all, you'll see, has all similar 
a similar vein. It brought together many different questions that people asked. Yeah. Finding truth in different ideologies. There are so many competing ideologies, all purporting to tell the truth. Is there any way to find out objectively what, is, what, is, what that is, truth, according to Judaism? In fact, it seems that the Gemara used certain questions to determine the true understanding of a particular text or statement. For example, Menoha Namila, Maitaima, Memonavshach, Stira Meneobei. In other words, using logical ways of trying to understand something. So the question is, however, that same methodology is never used to determine the truth of other basic axioms. Why is that? And is it okay to use Gemara methodology on Judaism's basic principles? Okay. Well, I'm going to read another question because I think I'll try to answer both of them together. Proof that Orthodox Judaism is the correct path for Jews. There are many competing ideologies. Um, I'm sorry. I was recently asked by a non-religious friend whether there is anything that a truly objective secret could test that would prove with a high level of probability that Orthodox Judaism is the correct way for Jews to live, and that is what God wants. Does that exist, or is it required to engage in a long philosophical discussion or bring them to a Shabbos meal, which is mostly an emotional experience? Even if one rationally concludes that Judaism is the correct religion, how can one be certain that Orthodox Judaism and which version of Orthodox Judaism is the correct way to live? Even within Orthodoxy, there are so many versions, yeshivish and litvish, many different types of chassidim, sfardim, ashkenazim, etc. Shouldn't one try to find out which one is the correct version? Or is there even a correct version? Okay. I punch these two together because they are similar, they have overlap, let's put it that way. This, this follows where we, let's continue where we left off in this context. There's the thing of Nasa Venishma. Nasa Venishma is, what does that mean? That when the Jews were stood at Mount Sinai and Hashem said, here's the Torah I want to give you, they said, Nasa, we will do a Nishma afterwards. We'll hear and understand afterwards. Now, it seems like a very um, irresponsible way of doing things. Would you sign a contract and then say, I'll read it afterwards? And this indeed is a question of the Gemara and the Peches where he's asked over, the philosopher asked over, what kind of nation is this? Hurried nation. What kind of irresponsible that you just say yes without looking at what it is? So of course the answer is that Nasa was not some reckless act. Nasa was, remember, the Jews, to put it in simple terms, had a relationship with God already. They were dating God. Time of Avram Avinu, and Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and all the generations till Moshe. So it wasn't like the first time they heard that God exists. Many of them were steeped in Torah. Actually, Nitna, they studied Torah, and understood and heard about God from parents, from mothers, from fathers. There was faith within them. Aminim, Bnei Aminim, they were saturated with faith. And they had seen now the miracles in Egypt and had left Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim with those miracles. They came by Mount Teda, they were not newcomers. And oh, God is suddenly telling them, here's... so there's a point, are you ready to sign this contract? 
They said, Nasa, absolutely, we're in. What about all the logic, intelligent people? They knew enough to say, I accept this God. And then I'll sit and study. And that's what they said, Venishma, that comes next. Nasa is not alone, Kabbalah sale is not enough. This is the partnership between faith and reason that works best. The mistake that many people think is that faith is beneath reason. It's for the children. It's a crutch. You don't understand, so I say I believe. Easy way out. No. It's the opposite. Faith is above reason. Reason you use as much as you can. Then it comes to it, leads you to a door. And you, now you have to make a choice. But you make an informed choice. You make a commitment. You can always say there's always 1% chance, maybe not. That's where faith takes you to another level. So true faith is saying there's more than I'll ever understand. And these work hand in hand in Judaism. So if someone asks the question, they all tell the truth, how do I find in Judaism? It's experiential. Study Judaism. And you'll see, it's not about purely just proving something. That's part of it. Nothing creates itself. Is that absolute proof? You see a lot of people reject it. They won't reject that if there's a book, there's an author. If there's music, there's a composer. If there's art, there's an artist. It's only the existence or creation itself, which is more beautiful than any book and any music and any art. People say maybe it came by itself. Because as I said, God created an agnostic universe. So if you're going to just go by that proof, you can argue about it all day and all night. So you have to take and say, one second, it makes sense. And then you look at other things. You look at how the Torah's truths resonate, what it expects of us, the Jewish people's survival, continuity. You go on and on, and you come to a combination, I would say, of faith, reason, experience, intuition. It's not one or the other. That's a true, healthy way of doing things. Most decisions human beings make are not rational. When you marry, is that a rational decision? Hopefully it's not irrational. But there's also a need a leap, a certain leap. Business decisions. You have two business opportunities. Why this one, not that one? You don't always know positive. They have to go by other instincts. That's how wise decisions are made. So yes, there are methodologies that Taylor uses, and we need those methodologies, but there are also axioms. You need to know what you're addressing. You want to address an axiom? Fine, address it. Once you accept an axiom, there are many things that follow. So many times you have to accept the axiom before. For example, we always talk this example about, the Rebbe brings this example very often. You have a headache, God forbid, and the doctor says, take this medication. You go do a whole analysis of whether the medication, how it works and whether it works and so on. No, because you trust the doctor. You want to do it afterwards, do it, but meanwhile you have a headache. Meanwhile you need to get rid of the headache. So there are many things in life we trust an expert. Now, go study. Absolutely. But you don't want to, but every study has to follow axioms. And you can't always prove an axiom till you continue on. You have to go with the axiom like every scientist does. You work with that axiom, you try to test it. And if it doesn't work, you can go back and challenge the axiom. That's the general approach. As far as Orthodox Judaism, first of all, the word Orthodox, I don't recognize. It's not a Torah word, it's a comparison to Reform, Conservative. So let's not use that word. Let's just use well, Judaism. Judaism was given as a, if the Constitution of the United States is a man-made document. Imagine if everybody came and decided, you know what, I don't respect this Constitution. I think we can change it. You have no law. That's even a man-made document. 
The fact is the Torah was given at Sinai rules. And those rules are very specific. Now within the rules, you can have disagreements. You have Shammai and Hillel who disagree adamantly. One says it's kosher, one says it's not. One says it's Yom Kippur today, another person says you can work and eat today. As long as you work within the framework, as I said, there has to be a framework of laws, even when it comes to man-made systems, then you're all right. And I don't think you have to prove one is better than the other, as long as it's following those rules. That's why you have Ashkenazim and Sephardim, and you have different schools, Nara, Nara, or Pashta, which means once you, the axioms are the same and the methodologies are the same, there are many different interpretations. Completely legitimate. Ain't they saying Shabbos? People have different opinions. If you start tampering with the axioms, was, was Torah given at Sinai? Is there a God? Is this absolute truth? Then you're going into waters that are problematic. And we'll talk about that a little later in the Chassidus question. But the point is, we don't have to prove one particular form of Judaism. As long as it's within that framework, and, and there's plenty of variation, as you see, then there's really room for different opinions, different communities, different customs, and that's perfectly legitimate. Not only legitimate, it's made that way when the Jews walk through the parting of the sea. Twelve different paths. Each tribe, went on its path. Because each one has, it's like people who are more zvulen or yisachar. More business person or more scholar person. Which one's right? Each one has their way of serving God. Okay. Next question. How was the Rambam able to live in Egypt? Does Chassidus explain why the Rambam, the Moshe Rabbeinu of his generation, lived for some time in Egypt? Why did Hashem send Moshe back to Mitzrayim? Okay, I'm not sure what that means. Thank you, Rav Simon. Well, this is a question that has been asked and discussed many times over and over again. And um, we have, there's actually a Sikh in Chelikutes, I believe it is, in Parshas. Chelikutes um, and Parshas, let me give you the exact place. Where is it? It's in Parsha Sheftim, the second sikha, a whole sikha about this. And about the Rambam himself, the Kaftar of Ferech writes, and some people disagree, but he writes that the Rambam himself would sign letters, a person, when he lived in Egypt, who's being over on three lavim every day. Because three times it says in the Torah, you shouldn't go back to Mitzrayim. But, and yet the Rambam did live there. So there's many different answers given. I'll just give you a selection of a few. And uh, one is... Let me just, uh, I'm looking it up here. Here are the several answers given. One is that the prohibition applies only to returning to Egypt from Eretz Yisrael, not coming from another place. Some say that the prohibition of living in Egypt only applied when the people of Egypt were particularly immoral, but it's not prohibition for all times. Others say that once Sancherev, which means he moved everybody around, so there are no real Egyptians any longer in Egypt. So there's no prohibition now because of that. Others say it was only when the Eden lived primarily in Etzisrael, that's when the prohibition was.
uh, the Radbaz writes, and he also lived there for a while, that the prohibition is only if somebody goes there to live permanently, but not if you go for asylum and you end up staying there, which could be the case with Arizal, who lived there for a while, his teacher, the Shittimukabetzas, and the Rambam and others. So the fact is communities did live there, and uh, the general prohibition was because the bitter finished, or due to the fact that Mitzrayim were decadent and profane, and that was not a place to be. But the fact that some did end up going there was not a breaking of the prohibition, even though the Rambam does write that in the letter according to the Kaftav of Fedach. So, yeah, uh, is it the Kaftav of Fedach? Let me just see. I believe so. And that's a general answer to the question. So obviously, when they were there, they did do some type of birur, and uh, even though it was finished primarily, but obviously they would never have gone over, a pro- they would never have transgressed a prohibition. So wh- however you explain it, it all works out. With that, let's do a little follow-up, and then I'll do the, the Chassidus question essays. Actually, the follow-up I'm not going to do because of time limitations. So, let's just go to the Chassidus question. Chassidus question is like this. Hello, Rabbi Simon. The Rambam writes in Hilchus Tumura, Ken Rambam, 413. Although all of the chukim of the Teda are decrees, which means they are decrees that are super rational, is it is fit to meditate upon them and wherever it is possible to provide a reason, one should provide a reason. A Jew who identifies as reform, quote-unquote, pointed to this halacha as justification for Dennis Prager's rational Bible, Mendelssohn's Biur, and all the rational developments, quote-unquote, the reform movement has introduced. Has introduced. Their argument is that if it's halacha to rationalize chukim, then surely we can rationalize the whole teda. Please explain how their approach is a corruption of Rambam's intent, and how does Chassidus explain the halacha? Thank you for all your videos. Yeah. So this goes back to something I said before about Nasev and Nishma. The Rambam himself says, although all the chukim are decrees. What does that mean? That even though they're all because God said he wanted so. It's a decree. As the Friedrich Rebbe says, even the mitzvahs are also chukim. That's what God wanted. There are some that God put into mamish seichel that we can understand, like things like don't steal, don't, don't kill, logical, rational, moral mitzvahs. And there are things that God did not explain quite that way. Says the Rambam that even though they're all chukim, all are chukim, yeah, wherever we can explain, we should explain. Yes, because God gave us a mind. And he put the Teda and his Mislabish and Seichel, but it's still a language of Chassidus. It's Ratzin that's Mislabish and Seichel. So really, it's all Ratzin. That's what God wants. There's somewhere God directly put the Ratzin as Mislabish Chachman makes total sense to the point that Gemara says that if we're not for the Teda, we would learn Tzniyas from a cat and other moral behavior from different animals. That you see it's planted into nature and human beings have come to these conclusions on their own. 
So wherever we can, we want not just nasa but nishma to make it part of ourselves and internalize it. Even things that are chukim, even Porah Adumach comes and explains that Rotsi and Shuv is Maim Chaim and the Eish and the offer, the Efer that remains from the burning of the Porah and other explanations. It's not a contradiction because all of it is really Rotsi. But we try to understand. The more we understand, we're internalizing God's will into our systems that we can also understand and feel it. When you take the rational and you take that and say rational is you worship the mind and you eliminate the Ratzon alien and say anything I don't understand I'm going to eliminate. It's a whole different reality. That's a whole different thing. That's absolutely off the, off the reservation. That's not Shammai and Hillel or others trying to understand a Pesach and trying to explain it. And sometimes you explain it, sometimes you don't fully explain it, sometimes it remains a chukah, a, a decree that's beyond... But you try the best. And Abba never said that if it's rational, if you don't understand it, you reject it. That was the problem. They started worshiping the mind, that the mind is more important than the Ratzon Elyon, the God's will. So it's God's will to put it into Seichel too. Not that Seichel decides whether this is God's will or not. If you don't make sense to you, we don't do it anymore. That's what happened. That's the problem. But to explain things, by all means. The more you explain, the more you're internalizing, the more you're actually committed because you want to not just follow God's rules, you want to actually relate to them. But even if you don't, that doesn't mean you reject it. That's the key difference. And I hope that's clear enough. With that, let us go to three essays. We're winding down the essays of last year, 2019, preparing for the new essay contest coming up. And you can already begin writing your essays if you like. So essay number one is The Misunderstood Power of Women. By Ita Gordon. Albany, New York, age, uh, age here, and uh, age 17. Student Bernays Chaya, Albany. Interesting title, right? Misunderstood power of women. Throughout history and in many societies, women have been considered second-class citizens. They were used as objects to show off their beauty. They were pressured regarding how they dressed and how they looked and how much makeup they wore. And he goes on to explain the whole evolution of the attitude toward women. With the question that, but was, can, why can't women be as men? Well, this essay goes on to explain that women's role in Judaism have never had this issue, and that they actually always had power, and it's time to reclaim that power that they have. That modern feminism does not compare to the true nature of feminism in Judaism. Well done. Important essay. Some themes we are very familiar with, but there are a lot of things here that are very unique. And thank you for that. The next essay is Making Decisions by Mushka Ryder, United States, student based Hanitzva Seminary, 20 years old. He writes, decision-making, what's so hard about it? It drags and drags and makes your mind go crazy. It makes you have anxiety and affects your physical well-being. Why can't we just know what we want? There's a reason why I couldn't decide whether to write the essay until the day before it was due. Difficulty making a decision. And goes on to explain, according to Chassidus, how we can get over the, the indecisiveness of our lives and actually t- take on and do come to right decisions and live up to them and not procrastinate. 
Very nice essay, and relevant to all of us, of course. We all would love to be able to be motivated that way. And I thank you for that. Very good essay. And finally, the third essay is Perfecting Connection by Millie Rosenblum, Spring Valley, New York, age 16. Student, Labavitch Girls High School, Chicago. A young man once approached Labavitch Rebbe and asked, Rebbe, what is it that you do that makes people from all different backgrounds flock daily to you to seek blessing and guidance in their life? With a kind and loving smile, the Rebbe answered, I try to be a good friend. Confused by the Rebbe's response, the man forgot he was standing before, blurted out, seriously, is that all that you do? And the Rebbe went on to explain what a real friend is. Someone whose presence you can think out loud without worrying about being judged or taken advantage of. Someone who you can be completely open with. And the essay goes around, surrounds, is built on this, uh, this statement, beautiful story, about uh, people, real friends versus these fake friends that we have. And it goes on to explain, according to Chassidus, chapters, especially in chapters 31 and 32 in Tanya, what true love is. Another excellent essay. And with that, we conclude the essays. These essays have just been posted at chassidusapply.com. And um, as I said, we're preparing for the new essay contest to 2020. This particular year, the 70th year of the Rebbe's leadership. It's the 100th year of the Rebbe Rashab Zistalkas, the Friedrich Rebbe's leadership. So it's a special year, always round and round. And may we use these special days to prepare properly, as I said at the outset, for the 70th year, 70th anniversary and Yushvat, and doing things that strengthen everything that Rebbe stood for, especially the ultimate shlichas of bringing the Gula and Mashiach. So we're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Chassidus, my life, Chassidus applied. Uh, please share your questions, your comments, your feedback, your support. Consider, please, to dedicate a program or more than one program in honor of a loved one or memory of a loved one. Everyone should be blessed only with good news and it should be a very Simcha Dika week and a very Rambam Dika week and a Chassidish week and we'll be here next Sunday. Everyone be blessed. Kol Tuv. Thank you.